biggest threats facing the United States coming from communist China. It's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. It's become more clear to me than ever that China has a plan to replace the United States. And they're working at it every day. What are the true stakes and how should Washington approach them? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. An alert for all Americans. The House's new committee on China is holding a hearing and laying out the biggest threats facing the United States. Lawmakers say they're coming from the communist regime. Here are the details. Just how big is the China threat? The House Select Committee on China held its first hearing to lay it out. Here's what the head of the committee says about it. We may call this a strategic competition, but it's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. And it's become more clear to me than ever that China has a plan to replace the United States. And they're working at it every day. A lawmaker says it comes down to what kind of world we want to live in. Do we wish to live in a fundamentally free world led by the United States? Or do we wish to live in a totalitarian police state led by the Chinese Communist Party? The committee's top Democrat said lawmakers on both sides of the aisle underestimated Beijing, assuming that trade and investment would lead to democracy in China. Instead, the opposite happened. As China's economy has grown more than tenfold since gaining access to U.S. and world markets, the has, CCP has, among other things, strengthened its authoritarian control at home, including engaging in a genocide of the Uyghur people. The CCP has funded a massive military buildup, threatening its neighbors, including Taiwan. And it has pursued economic and trade policies that flat out undermine our economy. The hearing covered a range of threats. From fentanyl to money laundering, the Chinese spy balloon, semiconductors, and food security. Four witnesses gave testimony. H.R. McMaster is the former national security advisor for President Trump. He said China poses a greater threat to America's freedom than Soviet Union, given China is more intertwined in the global economy. We never gave the Soviet Union the kind of access that we gave to Chinese Communist Party operatives, members of the, of the party. Beijing's long arm even managed to set up three Chinese police stations on American soil. The FBI shut down one in New York City and it's unclear what's happening with the other two. Chinese authorities say the offices help overseas Chinese with passport services, while human rights groups say they help Beijing harass and track down dissidents living in the U.S. It's unacceptable that people who are here in the United States should be harassed or under threat by an authoritarian regime. As for the committee's next step, Gallagher said U.S. policy over the next 10 years will set the stage for the next 100 and that the U.S. cannot let the CCP prevail. Are blacklisted Chinese companies still getting U.S. technology? More than $23 billion worth of U.S. tech products got the green light to be sent to China. That's in the first quarter of 2022 alone. The information comes from Congressman Michael McCall. He spoke during a committee hearing on Tuesday. Even when a Chinese company is put on the U.S. blacklist, American companies can still apply for certain export licenses to do business with them. 
McCall claimed that only 8% of requests for those licenses were denied last year from January to March and questioned the Commerce Department's approval process, pointing to a statement from the department that it's doing everything it can to prevent sensitive U.S. technologies from getting in the hands of Chinese military intelligence services or other parties. As of now, almost 640 Chinese companies are listed on the entity list. Washington's top intelligence official says a leak from a Chinese lab likely caused the COVID-19 pandemic. That follows a Department of Energy report that concluded the same. Here's FBI Director Christopher Wray on Fox News discussing the investigation Tuesday. The Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our U.S. government and, and close foreign partners are doing. Ray says the FBI has assessed that a lab leak was probably the culprit for quite some time now. For other agencies, along with the National Intelligence Panel, still judged that the pandemic was likely the result of a natural transmission. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. government has not reached a definitive conclusion, consensus on the pandemic's origins. Dr. Marty McCary testified before Congress on the topic. He says it was a no-brainer that COVID came from the Wuhan Institute. He added it was only an issue because the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, funded the lab. McCary also mentioned how two leading virologists told Dr. Fauci in January 2020 that COVID was likely from the lab. McCary says both scientists changed their tune just days later in the media. He added that both scientists later received $9 million in funding from the NIH. The NIH maintains that evidence suggests COVID originated naturally. Next, a look at some questions that stretch back to the start of the pandemic, many of them first rising when Chinese authorities appear to hide the gene sequence of the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Back in 2020, Chinese researchers made a request to the U.S. top health agency, asking officials there to delete genome sequences of early COVID-19 cases from a key database. The U.S. National Institutes of Health, or NIH, completed that request. Explaining why the NIH said authors of research papers hold the right to their own data, including the right to withdraw it. The deleted data contains key information, including the genome sequences of virus samples from patients in Wuhan. Those were collected in January and February of 2020, right after the outbreak began. A virus's genome sequence is crucial for research and treatment. China's request to the NIH was just one of a few examples. As early as January 2020, a lab in Shanghai published the world's first genome sequence of the virus. But a day later, Chinese authorities ordered the lab to close. The apparent concealment of the data isn't limited to genome sequences. Chinese officials knew about the virus at least as early as December 2019 but hid the information for weeks. Officials also punished doctors who tried to send out an early warning, including Dr. Li Wenliang. Li later contracted the virus and died. After the initial outbreak, Chinese authorities shut down the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan. The Chinese Communist Party considers it the origin of the CCP virus, but it quickly became near impossible to trace potential evidence there after workers were dispatched to disinfect the area within days of its shutdown. Besides its tight grip on virus data, the Chinese regime has also arrested citizen journalists who covered the outbreak. 
One of them is still in prison. She was sentenced to four years for reporting on the virus in Wuhan, while another reporter is still missing. The U.S. taking another step to counter human rights abuse and forced organ harvesting in China. A bill aimed at the state-sanctioned crime passed unanimously through the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Tuesday. It's now advancing to the House floor. Here's the latest. The bill is known as the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act of 2023. If passed, it would levy sanctions on perpetrators, barring their entry into the United States and blocking their financial transactions on U.S. soil. Congressman Chris Smith is the bill's lead sponsor. Here's what he had to say. My bill will be coming up that deals with organ harvesting, forced organ harvesting. And the fact that the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping is murdering between 60 to 100,000 average age 20-year-old uh, men and women in China, Uyghurs, uh, uh, Falun Gong practitioners, to steal their organs is something that is Nazi-like um, and, and uh, barbaric. So our bill would, would hold to account in that supply chain. And why should Americans care that organs are being harvested in China? Well, anyone who does get a transplantation should be very aware of its source to ensure that that person voluntarily offered their organ, be a heart, liver, or whatever it might be, that they were indeed dead at the time of the, of the organ transplant. Uh, but in China, everything is reversed. Uh, they go and pick and call, as they call it, uh, you know, these, these very healthy people. And the Falun Gong practitioners are extraordinarily healthy uh, because of their religious practices, because of, of their lifestyle. So they become victimized by the Chinese Communist Party as the victims to, to steal their organs. Beijing says the organs come from voluntary donors. But a London-based People's Tribunal concluded in 2019 that China continues to forcibly harvest organs on a large scale. Aerospace company Lockheed Martin is hoping for another big order from Australia. An executive said Tuesday they hope the country buys more F-35 fighter planes after it completes a defense review. Canberra already has over 70 of the planes on order. That's according to Executive Vice President of Aeronautics Greg Ulmer. Those jets will form three squadrons, with all aircraft scheduled to be fully operational this year. Defense Minister Richard Marles said the government would publish its defense review in April. Australia has joined the U.S. in pushing back against Beijing's growing power and influence, particularly its military buildup, pressure on Taiwan and deployments in the contested South China Sea. Lockheed says Australia would receive more F-35s in about four years if it placed an order this year. Diplomacy may be thawing between Beijing and Canberra. Leaders and officials from both nations are looking to rebuild ties two and a half years after a host of Chinese trade sanctions hit Australian products. Beijing imposed the penalties in 2020. They're worth roughly $14 billion and cover goods from coal to wine. The limits were widely seen as a response to disputes over Chinese tech giant Huawei and Beijing's intellectual property theft, pushed over the edge after Canberra called for a probe into the origins of COVID-19. But now trade could be on a patch to relaunch. In the energy sector, Chinese utilities and traders stepped up purchases of Australian coal in February. And in early January, Beijing gave four state-backed firms permission to ship in Australian coal. That marked the first sign of easing of the unofficial ban. China is the world's biggest coal consumer and Australia the globe's number two exporter. 
A full resumption in trade could support global fuel prices needed for major industries like power generation and steel production. Though if trade does resume, many producers still plan to avoid becoming too reliant on China again. The shift appears promising, but differences over national security, human rights, and Australia's ties to the U.S. and U.K. through the AUKUS Nuclear Submarine Alliance could make for a bumpy road ahead. In China and overseas, a grassroots movement is quietly taking hold, with more Chinese citizens breaking away from Beijing's ruling party. Among them are school principal Zhuang and senior party official Chu. They're part of the Tuidang movement, translated to English as Quit the CCP and its affiliated groups. The campaign has reached more than 400 million people since its launch about 20 years ago. To quit, participants post their withdrawal statements on a website run by the New York-based Global Tuidang Center. With help from volunteers around the globe, many use pseudonyms to protect themselves and their families from possible retaliation. In his announcement, Zhuang said his father was one of the students protesting in the gathering in Tiananmen Square in 1989. He ended up in prison under persecution from the Chinese Communist regime. His family wasn't reunited until six years later. Zhuang himself also faced threats and repercussion from the Communist Party. That's for supporting pro-democracy campaigns. Still, he says, although the CCP seeks to control people's minds and behavior, it can never suppress their faith. Drong's resolve is echoed by Chu, a party official with a state-owned enterprise. In communist China, all state-owned companies operate in-house communist party committees. The group functions as the company's actual decision-maker, and at Chu's company, he's part of that leadership. Chu says he has a deep understanding of the party's nature and workings, and says his conscience has suffered since Xi Jinping came to power. He adds that it's part of what prompted his decision to leave the party. Coming up, U.S. pension funds are investing in Chinese companies, and some American companies say they're ready to go back to China now that Beijing's strict lockdown policy is a thing of the past. But is it the best approach long term? It may get you some short-term gains that you like or some income that you like, or it may get cheap goods for you on a near-term basis. But long term, this is not how you want to live. Like the head of the Tibetans once told me, um, he said, you know, either Either China will change the world or the world will change China. It's going to go one of these two ways. Uh, and I want the world to change China, not China to change the world to look more like the communist dictatorship that's there now. Tiffany Meyer spoke to Sam Brownback, former U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, for more. Those details after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. U.S. pension funds are investing in Chinese companies. But what would happen if a kinetic war broke out over Taiwan? And while nations worldwide have largely put the pandemic behind them, its impact is still being felt. To cope, some companies are looking to diversify. But what's the best long-term approach? Tiffany Meyer sat down with Sam Brownback, former U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, for his take. 
It seems often there one issue that comes up are reports about, say, the thrift savings plan that pours about a trillion dollars into China in like terms of pension funds, and these are, say, government employees who maybe spend their careers trying to fight against a communist regime. And so on the terms of a potential coming war, we do have that top general that was just speaking, it might be as soon as 2025. In terms of an actual kinetic conflict, how much is it coming down to our own funds that are going into China? And there, how do we stop that? Well, there's just way too much of Western resources propping up the Communist Party in China. And that, and that is happening. If you pulled out Western investment and Western companies from China, the Communist Party collapsed. The place collapsed. Now, it's hard to ask a, a fortune 50 or 100 company that's invested so heavily in China and half of their profits currently are coming out of there to say, tomorrow you got to shut it all down. But we can certainly be telling them, you've got to get your supply chain somewhere else. These economies are splitting apart. We are in a Cold War status. Uh, the, the Chinese have already declared it. We haven't declared it yet, but we are in that and we're headed towards that. And you as a leader of one of these companies have to decide, are you going to well, to continue to bet your company uh, on a very questionable future uh, on a dictatorial regime? It seems on that note that during the pandemic, there was some more awareness on that. Many companies were finding out, oh, their supply chains coming from China were really getting snarled and delayed and all that. But now with China reopening its borders, many companies are going back to China, expecting that China market to come back. So where do you see all of this going? I, if I were a company, I would not be betting on going to China. Uh, I would be working hard to go other places. The, the, but the Chinese dictators have made it easy for companies. I mean, this isn't communism. This is an authoritarian dictatorship. And so if you're a big company, you want to come in, you want to invest half a million dollars, they'll subsidize it. They'll make sure you have the labor there. They'll make sure that the roads are there. And they'll do it quickly. In the United States, to, up, uh, to locate something, a new plant places, often will take years for the environmental impact statement. Just getting those things figured out, well, they make it real easy. But that doesn't mean it's good on a long term for you or your company or for, or for global peace. I was really disappointed in Davos this year where the number two uh, leader in China is feted by the world's big companies and investors as you know, this great leader and listening to every word he has to say and where are they taking uh, the country and because as if that's the future for them. When he's got a, a gulag operating right now in Xinjiang, he's doing forced organ harvesting of individuals that is so barbaric you wouldn't even have thought of it in medieval time periods. And they're at war with all faiths Right now, it's not just the Muslims or the Buddhists or Falun Gong, it's Christians too, it's everybody. And we want to do business with these guys? Zooming in on the human rights aspect, what do you see happening in terms of the current pandemic that's happening there, the current COVID outbreak? Has that worsened the human rights situation or maybe has that turned more people towards faith or what have you seen? Yeah, I think it's just made people, more people recognize the dictatorial nature of the regime. 
And they're welding people into buildings and then people <laughs> die because a fire uh, starts. I, I think they really mishandled it from the very outset in Wuhan. Um, you know, they, they slapped up facilities like the Wuhan Virology Laboratory at a cost factor that was maybe a fifth of what we would spend to build something like that. And then they start doing this really dangerous research on a high-level pathogen. And it, it's hubris. It's them saying, well, we can do this. We're the Chinese Communist Party. We'll do it. Uh, and then it creates a horrible situation for the world. I, I hope really all of this has enlightened the world to this is the kind of leadership that is leading China today. And it's a dangerous leadership. And it's a bad path. Speaking of the Maoist aspects, it seems, you know, after Xi Jinping secured his third term, he was really making this return to Mao or a very emphasis on the ideological aspects. But we also seem to be seeing more protests in China. You have the white paper movement where people weren't just protesting the COVID lockdowns, but also calling for Xi Jinping himself to step down and also the CCP to step down. What do you see happening there? You know, I, I was very encouraged. I mean, that was, that was one of the first major protests that we saw in China in the communist era. That's a big deal. I, I had a guy that's a scholar that watches a, a number of countries, and I was asking him one time what he thought about what was happening in China. He said, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't have close enough information. But they're acting like a, a regime that's towards the end of its existence. They're, they're doing bullying tactics. They're, they're not confident of where they're headed uh, in the future. And then you start getting these protests. It's, it's a pool of gas waiting for that match to strike, and you don't know what that match will be. But it, it's, not, um, it's not a stable situation. Ambassador Brownback, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Don Ma. Thank you for watching. Enjoy the rest of your week.